Yep. And I've actually, since, you know, recent events, I have started paying for news, which is super refreshing. So like the thing that newspapers warned us would happen has now happened. And it's, and all of a sudden the value of an actual non ad supported paywall news site is, is it was well worth it for me. Like I signed up for financial times, I don't know, maybe six months ago. And that's oh, yeah. the only place I get my news. I don't go on oh, social nice. media anymore. That's a good, that's a good paper too. That's right. It's very, it feels very, uh, unbiased. I'm sure everybody's got their biases, but it's presented in a very, through the lens of, I don't care about the money part, but the fact that they present it through the lens of whether or not something will be good for investors makes it very apolitical. Yeah. So it's like, wow, adults, <laughs> Yeah, they they kind of like uh, distill the emotion, I guess, from it. Yeah, there's no, it's completely unemotional. Yeah, and uh, but uh, cool. Yeah, I feel like um, I was really kind of weirded out by the fact that newspapers got recent events uh, wrong, and and then they and then they all of a sudden people was like, well, I'm going to pay for these uh, journalists that got it wrong, and gonna, like for the newspapers, like that is not really how that's supposed to work out. <laughs> so I don't really know. I mean, uh, I wish him the best, but I feel like it's not going to work. Anyway, so <laughs> let's let's get started. Hello, spacers from Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. On today's show, we talk with Jonathan Stark, author of a new book entitled "Early Billing Is Nuts," about charging clients what you're worth, or rather what the work is worth to them. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T, where I try to be witty in spite of my many typos. Also, CSSFConf 2017 is in New Orleans this October. Uh, plan, I know it's not, it's not October yet. You know, it's like we're barely into February. But uh, if you buy your tickets now, they'll be the cheapest that they'll ever be. Uh, so we get a great deal. And it's going to be just a great time. So definitely uh, check it out at cssdevconf.com. We haven't announced our speakers yet, but uh, trust me, uh, you won't you want to get your ticket now because uh, if you miss it, uh, yeah, you miss it when we start announcing the keynote speakers. It's, it's gonna be great. Uh, the SVG Summit, it's all about scalable factor graphics, is taking place online, February fifteenth. Uh, we have some great guests like Chris Coyer and Sarah Jessner speaking, uh, with many many more. Uh, take twenty percent off with the code non-breaking space show when you register now. Uh, and so you can check the lineup at svgsummit.com as well. So also set it and forget it with the non-breaking space show newsletter. So whenever a new show is ready, you'll be notified by email. And so you don't, you know, this be great. Uh, so you don't have to like check your podcast app or whatever. Uh, it's really awesome. So you can check that out at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Also, uh, any show notes and links will be available uh, for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. So uh, make sure to check that out. And as always, if you like the show, please tell others about Not Breaking Space show and that they can find it easily on iTunes. And that just helps us out immensely. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having Yeah. And um, um, one of the reasons I, I asked you here, uh, not because uh, 
you are a great speaker. Uh, you speak about uh, mobile web design, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you're also your you talk about responsive web design. Uh, you help, I think, uh, you make on your site that you you focus on credit unions mm -hmm. for, for responsive design and mobile design. I guess I don't yep. want to say it's responsive design, but I don't. Right, it's more. I do mobile strategy and recently focused down on credit unions, which I've been I've been working with a few credit unions and and related types of businesses for the past eighteen months or so, mm -hmm. and I'm a big fan of specializing okay. and and that includes on a particular audience a particular type of client right. makes it much easier to find work to get referrals and to really go deep instead of wide with your mm -hmm. skills so credit unions have really interesting challenges in general terms they attract a quirky kind of person that i like because yeah. credit is like nonprofit banking institution. Like that's like an oxymoron. Right. So it, it attracts an interesting, um, they're sort of like the hippies in the banking world. <laughs> and, uh, I really, I've, you know, I haven't been exposed to thousands of people in the space, but certainly hundreds. And yeah. I click with them surprisingly well, M more, you know, I kind of had a, I'm like, oh, it's going to be a bunch of accountant type people. And, yeah. You know, not that there's anything wrong with accountant type people, but I'm not a real suit and tie guy. So I didn't know if it would be a good fit. turns out it was. And they have some severe mobile user experience challenges as an yes. industry. So, and they've got some severe business challenges because they're right. getting their, their lunch eaten on both ends. You know, you've got the big banks like Bank of America, let's say. Yeah. And they're, they have just crazy budget to throw marketing campaigns and just do seemingly yeah. whatever they want. And then on the other side, you've got Silicon Valley, uh, fintech startups kind of nipping at their heels and and I you know we were just talking about newspapers I've seen it happen before where the entire in you know, the, the middle of a market just gets annihilated yeah. by the internet and startups and that sort of thing and and credit unions are strongly in the middle so yeah. if in my humble opinion <laughs> if they want to be competitive they need to be super forward-thinking uh, as forward thinking as they can to create an experience that younger members are going to enjoy because right now um, their membership is aging of course and mm -hmm. why you know why would you even consider a credit union mm -hmm. uh, why would you consider a bank even so it's it's an interesting challenge and it's on, on top of that you've got federal regulations so yeah. it's a fun fun complicated problem that you know you can go just a mile deep on. I really, right. really enjoy it. Yeah, I love. Uh, actually, one of my first web jobs was for a credit union, um, and so um, actually it was for a credit union service um, bureau. And so it was actually a I forgot, I forgot the name of it actually. But uh, what we did, we we're like kind of IT department for not only for I was part of the IT department for this the company or or nonprofit or organization I was with, but we serviced. Uh, all the Florida credit unions, mm -hmm. so with IT and some of that. So basically, back in the day when people didn't have websites, we would give uh, like probably the first generation websites for credit unions and some of that too. So that's right. like my first big exposure to credit unions, and uh, I just I totally been in love with them ever since then. So <laughs> yeah. they've been great. So and uh, and I I drive by whenever I visit Florida, I always drive by credit unions. Like hey, I used to know. I know I know the logo. I know exactly. What they <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but yeah, but speaking of quirky, I just had a great time at that place. A lot of quirky, great, great people. Mm -hmm. Great, so yeah. But uh, 
Cool. Yeah. And so I think part of that uh, you mentioned in, in uh, your new book, which is what I want to talk to you about, which is uh, Irly. Was it? Let me make sure at the title. Right. I've been at Irly Billing is nuts. Yeah. That's it. That's a great title. Thank you. And so, um, and so, and, and so basically the whole thing is like basically it's like a would you say it's like a getting all bullhorn and saying like try and change you know I'll just a lot of, I don't think it, the industry because I feel like uh, hourly billing has been around forever but mm-hmm. but you make a point that there's a moral dilemma mm-hmm. to hourly billing could you describe what you mean by that sure yeah I mean it's pretty straightforward um, it you know if I'm billing a client by the hour it's in my best interest to make it take as long as I can mm-hmm. I might not think that's the right thing to do for a variety of reasons, but it doesn't change the fact that the client, there's sort of the appearance of impropriety. You know, the the longer it takes for me, the better it is. The longer it takes for them, the worse it is. Mm -hmm. So you're immediately at cross purposes. And and everyone I've ever talked to that bills by the hour say immediately say, but yeah, no, but I don't do that. And I would never do that. And I, when I bill by the hour, I never did it either, but it presents this, this, appearance to the client or this potential the client's kind of in the dark about the whole thing and it creates this what i call a trust fracture that if things don't go perfectly which they rarely do uh that that split starts to fester and that's when you end up with clients from hell because and you you know i don't want to interrupt you but it's just like also you know software projects never go 100 percent on plan right yeah it's very complicated and they're usually at least, you know, any non-trivial project is going to have at least six stakeholders. Mm. And then you might, and then throw in third, maybe you've got a third parties that you're trying to integrate with or external APIs or some other vendor of theirs. And you're just, you're literally no one is in control of the project, not the CEO of the client. If they, you know, if he or she wanted to pull out a mallet and say, we're going to get this done right by next Thursday or, or by black Friday, and everybody and spend as much money as you want and get it done. This it's not out of their control. It's like a collaboration between a, a wide range of people who have all sorts of different motivations, and it's a very com- usually a very complicated thing. So it's it's totally hurting cats, and it's almost like no one's steering it. You can put up you can put up kind of like guardrails almost, mm-hmm. and the car will sort of stay on the highway, bouncing back and forth between the guardrails. But they're, depending on how you want to look at it, there are either a lot of hands on the steering wheel or no hands on the steering wheel. So it's really, um, the, the uncertainty is very high. So if you throw on top of that, that the longer it takes, the more it costs, it's, it's a recipe for, for client dissatisfaction. That was the, one of the main reasons that drew me away from hourly billing was that, or, or two, an alternative that I usually use value pricing for projects. The thing that, the thing that really sealed the deal for me was that I, I, it was almost impossible for me to guarantee customer satisfaction with hourly billing. It was extremely difficult because nobody knew the price when we were starting, and yet they had to make this huge decision. Right. I mean, it's a huge commitment without even knowing how much right. it's going to cost. Right. Right. And it, okay. and it, when you say oh, it's going to be fifty thousand dollars, mm. period, then everybody can say, hmm, "Is that worth it or not worth it? Is this outcome that we're expecting to get not not this list of features, but if this business outcome that we're all shooting for here, if it's worth a million dollars to the client, they're going to jump at a fifty thousand dollar price tag." 
So it just completely changes the whole relationship in a way that's, it's almost, I mean, you can describe it intellectually, but it's hard to get your head around until you have tried it uh, once or twice. And you're just like, whoa, this changes my entire way of thinking about pitching a project, Mm -hmm. kicking off a project and running a project. It's completely different and, and far, far better emotionally. Emotionally, it's great. Yeah, like uh, when I was reading your book, you know, about, you know, the problems with early building, it reminded me of uh, uh, a snippet from uh, the uh, PBS documentary, The Triumph of Nerds. I don't know if you remember, remember that one, but uh, uh, in Microsoft, you know, uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, you know, when they were talking to IBM, uh, they would always, they come over and they would actually ask them, like, how, how many lines of code oh, yes. will it take? take to build this project and they call it like k-locks or something Locks, like, yeah k-locks yeah, yeah k-locks thousand lines of code yeah he said like oh they just uh he said he said they made it his uh back just crinkle up i think is the phrase he used and uh it's just because it's like well if you're a programmer you want to be as most efficient and reusable of your code as much as possible you don't want to like you know write thousands of thousands of thousands of lights of code right. to write you know to like you know i guess uh, you know charge thousands and like thousands of millions of dollars for yeah, it. To, to, to sort of indicate your value. Yeah. Because you could write a million lines of horrible code, obviously. Yeah. It's not worth anything. Yeah. So it's it's a silly way. And I think an hour is just an arbitrary, just as arbitrary a unit of measure as a line of code or a pixel or or whatever thing or an inch. Like, oh, how much is this house going to cost? Well, let's see. We've got this many inches in it. Who cares? You know, the house, it's, it's not how the buyer is going to value the house. Yeah. They don't care how many inches. There might be some, you know, somewhat of a correlation that you could draw. But honestly, I think that that the reason that hourly billing has stuck around as long as it has is that it's easy to measure. Right. So it feels like you're measuring something. I mean, you are measuring something. It's just the wrong thing. Yeah, it, just, it feels like it's been around forever. It's and been around about a hundred years. Yeah, it's been like ingrained, and in, I mean, I knew about it. And it's also like kind of famously, like if I could say famously or infamously, mm. you know, when web designers uh, in the beginning of time of uh, web designers, you know, when we talk about like how we bill, you know, it's in my perspective at least, and we, we look at like uh, lawyers, like they charge by the hour or whatnot, mm-hmm. and it's just like, like well, if they charge by hour, we should charge by hour or, or whatnot, or like mm-hmm. our auto mechanic, you know, by the hour, we should f- figure out. We should also charge by hour. So, so why? What made you think? Like, what was the impetus for you to like say this is not working? I've sure. for alternatives. Yeah, there's a there's a specific story that happened. Um, I was managing a small firm. We did FileMaker development, mm-hmm. and it was a very well known firm. And I was the the vice president. We had about ten or fifteen developers at the time, and the, a question arose at one point if we had to lay someone off, who would it be? And my natural reaction was the junior person, you know, the, mm-hmm. the most junior person on the team. But then I was like, you know, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. I'm like, well, he's actually making us a lot of money because his salary is, is relatively low. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, not an intern, but, you know, we paid him a salary, but it was the lowest. Uh, if I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think it was. So, and then there's our best guy who was lightning fast and just, we could barely keep him busy because we finished things so quickly. His salary was something like double 
the junior guy and he would end up, you know, so we were making a lot less money off the best guy. So I'm like, the smart person to lay off besides me. So, you know, I was the first, I was like, I should be the first one, but I wasn't billable at that time. I was in management. But if we were going to lay off a developer, it would have to be the best guy from a financial standpoint. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because we were lucky to have this guy. He's a great coder. And I just couldn't, I was just wrestled with it for a week or two. I mean, I was like thinking about it from every angle and it doesn't make sense. We can't, we, we could never lay off that guy. And then boom, hit me like a ton of bricks. The problem is we're billing by the hour because our, cause I kept thinking, how, how would we make our best guy our most valuable guy? And the way that we would do that is that we would price his projects with a fixed quote and he'd be knocking them out of the park like so fast he could have like days off he could he could do an entire project in like two weeks and then have two weeks off and we'd still be making money off of him and then i was like oh wow i realized what it was so we need to so then i started looking around and researching a little bit and i found some books and i approached the owner who is a good friend of mine to this day i said i said dude we got to switch off this hourly thing it's causing not just this issue but i as once i saw it i was like this is like a cancer inside of our business it's causing tons of administrative overhead. The whole invoicing thing was a nightmare. I mean, once yeah, you yeah. saw what it was, there was like no end to the infection. Well, I do want to bring that up. Is like you, you call it cancer, and like one of the things you mentioned in your book is that you know if you do hourly and you uh, that the the bureaucracy, if you will, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I loved about it was like even if you do try to streamline it as much as possible with apps and. Uh, timer and stuff like that. There's still some bureaucracy left over, and you're mm-hmm. still trying to track things down uh, and everything like that. So I just I felt like that was like the best part. It's like no matter how much you make it less painful, it is still cancer. You're right? still measuring the wrong thing, right? Yeah. Like you're just you're just treating the symptoms. And I'll give listeners a or viewers a, uh, a little thing to think about. So if they're if you're if you're just like say you're a solo freelancer of some kind could be anything could be a software developer could be a photographer illustrator doesn't matter copywriter the most you're ever going to make in a year is $140,000 you can't reasonably exceed that amount there's only there's only three ways to go over that one is to work like a dog which is unsustainable the second is to dramatically increase your hourly rates which will make your, no one will hire you. It'd be impossible to make a case for a $300 an hour copywriter. You just wouldn't get any work. And you certainly wouldn't be busy 40 hours a week. That's for sure. At 300 bucks an hour. And the last one is to scale up by hiring a bunch of junior copywriters or developers or whatever else and trying to mark up their time. And of the three, I think the one that's, that, I see people reaching for the first is hiring people. Right. They're like, oh, the way out of this hourly trap is to hire more hands. Is to get more people into the trap. Yeah. <laughs> to suck more people in and just basically, you know, mark up their time and then just try and manage it. And that's fine if you want to manage people. And it does work. Uh, that's one of the reasons it has been around as long as it has is that it, you can make it work reasonably well it can more or less work as long as you're nailing your estimates every time. If you're, if you're coming in overestimate every time, then your life is a disaster area. So 
you can make it work so it hasn't gone away. And if you are, if you do really want to manage people, like you enjoy managing a team and, and doing that sort of thing, running an agency and, you know, onboarding employees and doing HR related stuff and all the things that are related to managing a team, like one-on-ones and all those things, then great. That's, that is a way to increase your, um, profitability, your revenue and all that. But a lot of people only do it because they think it's the only way to increase their profitability. And that's the group of people who I most want to help because they're going to be bad managers because they don't want to be managers. They want to keep doing copywriting or coding or whatever they do. And they're, and it's, it's just going to be bad. Like if you're not ready to fire somebody, you're not ready to hire somebody. And most of the people I come across are certainly who start hiring the first time they first start hiring. They're like, oh, wow, I'm going to get all my friends. We're going to work together. It's going to be great. And then they have to fire one of them. And all of a sudden, it's not so cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's definitely for sure. Yeah. Firing someone is not awesome. So for both parties. So, but, uh, cool. But the the argument I felt like that was the best uh, for against hourly billing was the uh, one about the student taking an exam. And that was at the end of the book, actually. I mm-hmm. it was, was like, uh, which is the following criteria where you use to calculate a student's exam grade? Would you be the amount of time spent on the test or the percentage of correct answers they got on the test? Right. And I thought, I thought that was like, boom, we're done. <laughs> we're out. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, taking longer on a test shouldn't increase your score. The teacher shouldn't okay. be like, you know what? You got half of these answers wrong, but he worked really hard. You know, and it's the same thing with a consulting engagement. It's like the goal is to achieve some business outcome. Like if you're doing B2B sales, that's the goal. There's no, there's no, like people don't want you to write code so they can print it out and hang it on their wall and be like, isn't that glamorous? Isn't that elegant? They don't? I'm pretty sure they don't. Okay. (laughs) Okay. They're not buying code from you. They're not buying a website from you. They're not buying features from you. They're buying some business outcome. And if you this is one of one of the problems with hourly billing is that you can get started working doing the tasks that they've outlined for you without having any idea what the outcome is or right. only the vaguest assumption of what it might be. And this is exactly where scope creep comes from. This is exactly where clients from hell come from. It's not their fault. It's your fault because you never found out where you were driving. You're just driving the car around randomly. Right. Never ask them where they want to end up. And you're just mushing pixels around and mushing code around until everyone feels like they're happy. But that takes a ton of time and money and it's all a waste. Right. And also, if you're the one driving, but you also have like six other drivers too with the stakeholders, you know, you're never going to figure out where you guys are going. So Yeah. So if, have you ever been in a design meeting where people are arguing for like an hour about what color blue they should use for a button? Oh, geez. Yeah. Who well, cares? I've had, like it's a waste. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So like have people like figure that out, have the designer figure that out, move on. But uh, yeah, so uh, so how did the uh, value pricing go? Like you talked about it, uh, right. your story, like so you're running a business and you decided to talk to your uh, your business partner mm-hmm. and said, okay, so let's let's try this. So how, how did, did you, did you try it out and how did it turn out? I, we didn't. He was like, he's like, I get what you're saying. Conceptually, it makes sense. Like he got it, mm-hmm. but he didn't, um, he couldn't see a path from where we were to where I was, this future I was painting. And to be fair, we probably would have screwed it up. So it's probably <laughs> good. He's smart. He's, it's probably good that we didn't do it because it's a lot harder than I expected it to be. But I couldn't keep doing hourly. I like I, I had like a religious experience. I couldn't do it anymore. 
And, you know, you got to realize at the time, my whole job was basically fighting with clients where we'd gone overestimate. That was basically my job. It was like, you know, arguing over hours, eating hours, worrying about profitability of individual resources, tracking hours, yelling at developers to log their hours. It was hours, hours, hours. Right. So all of a sudden when I had the, the sort of the, the heavens opened, uh, I was like, all right, dude, I got to go solo. Uh, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, see if I'm going to really try this out and do it. Uh, so I did that and it was amazing. Like my first year, my income doubled and I didn't work anymore. Um, my life, my quality of life went through the roof. I mean, I was miserable, you know, going through all of that. You know, it was just a kind of, I would fear the phone ringing. If the phone rang, I would just cringe. You know, it was going to be somebody who's haggling, you know, just, I got, you know, I spent all this money with you guys and I've got nothing to show for it. And we're already over budget and we're not even halfway done. And, you know, and you can, you can say it was their fault or you can say it was your fault. But the end of the day is nobody's happy. They're not going to hire you again if you ever get out of it. You know, if you ever somehow manage to finish it, it's horrible. So, that all completely disappeared from my life, 100% gone. And it's the best. I was making way more money. And so, and now here was the, here was the crazy thing was that the very first value price job I did, I gave them a fixed bid. So value pricing for people who don't know is, is basically you're giving someone a fixed bid, which I know scares the pants off people who are used to scope creep. But if you base the price on the value to the client and not your time and materials, like, you know, your, the number of hours you think you're going to work and then you mark it up a little bit, like add 15% for project management and maybe throw some other random variables on there and give them a fixed price, your price is going to be too low. So you're probably going to get killed. But if you can find a project where the client stands to benefit dramatically from the thing that you're doing for them, and it's not going to be a crazy amount of work for you. So there's a lot of sort of slush in the middle where if it turns out that it was way harder than you thought, it still doesn't matter because your effective hourly rate is still really high. So that was a little bit of a tangent. So the first time I did one of these projects, I, I, I like literally had this thought that made me jump because I had never had a thought like this before on any other project when I build hourly. And the thought was, maybe I can buy a plugin for this. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, it was like a voice that was not my own was inside my head. and was like, why don't you just look around for a plugin that can do this? Cause there was a, a project that I took on and had a particularly complicated, you know, I don't know, a piece. It was like a graphing thing. It was going to be really hard. It was going to be a lot harder than I initially thought it might be. Okay. So, you know, in a normal hourly scenario, I would have gone back to the client, dude, it's like it's, this graphing thing's going to be a lot harder than I thought. My estimates could be too low. We're going to go over and have that conversation. Everybody's had that conversation. Instead of having to think about that at all, I thought, huh, if I, if it, if I build this thing, it's going to take me say four weeks just to build this one feature. And that's going to make my effective hourly rate go way down. So then this voice out of nowhere in my head goes, maybe there's a plugin for this. And guess what? There was. So I bought it. It was like 750 bucks, which was more than I ever spent on literally any piece of software. And I bought it for a client because it was going to save me four weeks of work. I was like, I would have, I would have bought it. I would have paid twice as much. It was amazing. It was amazing. And so now for listeners or viewers, if you, this is especially true for software developers because we crave 
efficiency. We can't stand doing the same thing over and over again. But that doesn't square with hourly billing. But if you're if you're doing fixed prices based on value, it makes 100% sense to create code libraries for yourself, boilerplates, tools, anything that doesn't, you know, any tools that don't exist, I don't think you should create your own tools that already exist, just buy them. So you can invest in your efficiency and automation and code quality and all of these things. And all of a sudden, it makes sense to be faster. And you never have to ask this question that I get a lot from people. Like, oh, I built this great piece of code for a client. It took me 40 hours. I want to reuse it on this new client. Should I bill them for the 40 hours or not? I could build it from scratch again for 40 hours. And then I would feel like morally, you know, I, I'm, you know, morally absolved. Or I could just put it in there and not tell them and charge them for the 40 hours, basically lie that you'd worked the 40 hours. Or you could bring it up and have a conversation about it. But it's super awkward. And it's like that situation is a perfect example of why hourly billing is nuts. It's crazy. It makes no sense. It prevents you or at least discourages you from getting more efficient in any way. And some people will say, well, you could just raise your rates, but there's a ceiling to the amount your hourly rate. There's a ceiling to how far, how far you can raise your hourly rate that right. people, at a certain point, people just will not accept the fact that you're $500 an hour for rails. Yeah, or $300 for copywriting, which you put up earlier. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. Yeah, so like, um, yeah, so so you bought the plug-in and, mm -hmm. yeah. and because, because your fixed pricing or fixed value pricing or value pricing, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, is that uh, so? You didn't feel like the the awkwardness needed to come up. You just like, oh, nope. I, pr I promised I would I would bring a solution that was a win win for everyone, mm -hmm. uh, for you and the clients. And that in uh, uh, the in the success of the project is very high for the client. You know, it's very it's a it's something they really really want done. Um, and so you just say like, well, I got it done faster, and quality is still here that I promised. Yep. And uh, everyone, I, talked to, I talked to him about it. I said, hey, I found a plugin that we can literally buy and just stick it in. Mm -hmm. He's like, do you have any problem with that? Like, no. He asked me a couple of questions. And I was like, nope, I'll, I'll check it. Found out. Nope, it's all fine. You know, like licensing and stuff. Like, Will I be able to resell it and stuff like that? Because it was inside of a shrink wrap product, which right. tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we paid for the we paid for the shrink wrap licensing. Yeah. And it was like, you know, and... Uh, he was, you, you mentioned one of the huge advantages for him was now he didn't have to wait four more weeks to bring it to market. Now all of a sudden, boom, that really complicated feature that was going to be a real big, uh, from a marketing standpoint, his, his uh, user base really wanted that feature. I delivered it to him in a couple of days instead of a month. So it was just better all the way around. Right. It's unbelievable. The, the, the shift in your mindset is almost impossible to communicate. Like I can talk to you about it all day long, but when you first feel that voice and you're just like, it's, it gives you goosebumps almost. Yeah. So like, I think the, uh, the trouble I have, I guess I have trouble, well, not trouble, I guess I should say it's my trouble is that when I read the book, it's just like, wow, you need to have really, well, you have, there's like two things. One, you need to have confidence that you know what you're talking about, which goes back to knowing what you're talking about, right? So <laughs> if you're selling yourself as an expert at your thing, you should right. probably be an expert at your thing. Right. That's so like, true. so, so, so this is probably one work for someone fresh out of, you know, a uh, coding school or, or, or something like that. Like it'd just be like a junior developer, if you will, if that's the right term, would, would, you, would you say that's correctly? Like that I might see. be. It's much part. easier for someone who's been in business 
you know, for 10 years, of course, because they're going to have so much experience. They're, they're just going to be naturally better at dealing with clients in general. Yeah. But for people who are newer or yeah. are really, really panicking about the idea of fixed prices of any kind, whether they're value price or not, uh, maybe they tried them before and they got killed because the way they calculated the price, it was way too low. Uh, there, there are a couple of ways or three ways that I usually recommend people kind of dip their toe into the, not value pricing, but at least breaking the link between uh, trading time for money. So uh, one of the ways I can quickly run through them. Uh, one of the ways is to just, you know, somebody comes to you with a project, just break off a preliminary piece of the project <clears throat> and, and just fix price that one piece. It should be something that you think will probably only take you a week or two weeks A real, you know, compared to a six month project, that's a very small piece. And, Price it around a tenth, or yeah, it depends, but around a tenth of what you think the overall estimate for the project is going to be. So go through a normal process. You get a lead, lands in your inbox. You set up a phone call with them. You talk to them about the project. It's, it's ill-defined, you know, like they don't have answers to a lot of your questions. Um, you, you can't really get a good feel for the scope. Maybe there's some disagreement on their side, but hey, just get to work. You know, we'll pay you by the hour to start working on these features, and we'll figure it out while we're going. You know, if you have the if you have the the cushion to be able to maybe maybe walk away from the gig, you could say, "Listen, I don't really want to be taking your money until we have got a better picture of where we're going." Let's do an initial phase. Maybe it's a design phase. Maybe you do wireframes. Maybe you do style guide. Maybe you do, who knows? It could, be a, it could be a marketing calendar. But a step before the implementation, which is either, uh, either going to be a diagnosis or prescription phase of the engagement, where you diagnose and then you prescribe, and that's a discrete deliverable, if you will. And the outcome of that will be dramatically decreased uncertainty, which means less risk. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I find like a lot of agencies, web agencies, you know, for uh, just doing that design phase or like, I like the word diagnostic phase, mm -hmm. uh, description of better just, and I found like that was always, when I talked to agencies about that or, you know, people who, who, who manage agencies like that, when they talk like, yeah, we're going to do a design phase to figure out the scope of the project. I felt like, well, that must be a lot harder sell sometimes but sometimes a lot easier to sell hmm. because that way, you know, and one of the things that people would say, like once we go through that design phase, we'll have a, like a document that says, this is what the scope of the project is in terms of, uh, you know, the business solutions that we're trying to find mm -hmm. for you. And then you can still work with us, but you can just shop this document around. Yeah. You, it's no lock-in. Uh, when okay. I used to do development, I would say no lock-in. We need to do this. I'm not going to work with you unless we do this because I will just be, I cannot guarantee any kind of customer satisfaction. So I, you know, my product, and as far as I'm concerned, my product is customer satisfaction. It's not websites. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not confident that the client's going to be happy at the end of the engagement, I'm not going to start because it's too scary. So, you know, cause it turns into that old nightmare life from, you know, a decade ago. So I would insist that they would do this and, but I would be, you know, in, flashing lights. You do not have to work with me on the implementation piece. So like once it's done, you can shop this around to somebody who's far less expensive than I am. I promise you, you'll find someone less expensive than me. If you want to work with someone cheaper than me, go ahead. Cause I don't want to work with somebody who's cheap anyway. So I'd rather just do the, what I consider to be the strategic uh, planning part, which is 
I think the highest value piece of the engagement, highest, it's not the highest revenue, but it's the highest profit because it's valuable. You can, I can do it with very low risk in a very short amount of time with not a lot of effort because I have experience with it. And, you know, and if they don't, uh, if they don't go with me, fine. And in fact, these days in, in 2016, I vowed that I would never code for money again. I would never take on a new code for money project. So I only do those now wow. where I only do that piece. And then sometimes they'll keep me on during the implementation just to kind of babysit. So, you know, because they'll have like, yeah, we are going to outsource this to a low cost or a junior type developer, but could you just, you know, sort of guide the project, make sure that everything's cool or maybe even uh, help translate business speak to developer speak and back to make sure that the right things are getting built. So I don't, I, I haven't coded for, I mean, I have some old clients that I still do code for. They've been around for years, but um, very little. And I don't take on any new projects that involve coding. So that, that's one way is to, to break off a piece of the engagement as a preliminary planning phase and package it up in some way that doesn't make it feel, make the client feel like they're, they're, paying for you to learn about them. That's not really what it's about. It's about decreasing the risk of the overall project. And so when you talked about the clients, um, about, you know, trying to determine a value price for it, like when I do like the fact that you talk about the language mm -hmm. and talking to the clients, cause like one of the things when we, we, when I was part of a agency, one of the things I would always try to do is like try to talk to clients as much as I could, make sure I have a good relationship, but also try to figure out, uh, you know, their businesses, vernacular, you know, their language. Sure. And so, I, so when I wrote the proposal, they would grok it better and that they would see that we understood what mm -hmm. they're talking about. But, uh, but I love the fact that you just come out and just say, Hey, we're just, uh, trying to find out the business value for, for this and not the, you know, the tech speak for mm -hmm. that. Cause I think that was like, major mistake 101 that I made uh, for the first couple of years when I was freelancing. It was like I was trying to tell people about GIFs and JPEGs and how awesome they were. Technical debt. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just like, it's, it's, isn't this interesting to you? Like, no, what? Right. Um, so yeah. Um, so what type of questions would, or what type of thinking should people who are thinking about, who would think about trying to drop from Arlie uh, Beerling, like when they try to do the proposal, what, what, what questions should they be asking? Yeah. So in that initial client meeting, I would urge you to focus on why the client wants the project done in the particular way that they're investigating, not how they want the project done. So back in the day, when I was sitting in a meeting, I knew I was going to have to end up doing an hourly estimate after the proposal. So all I would do in the meeting was look for landmines. And in my head or in my notes, I was keeping track of scope. And the way that we used to do it was like, okay, how many, you know, we did, it was like database programming. So it was like uh, database application programming. So <clears throat> I'd be like, okay, how many tables are going to be? How many layouts for each table? How many relationships? And I'd be, I'd be like specking it out in my mind as we were sitting there. Never did I ask, why are they doing the project? Why not do it a different way? Why not wait? six months and study the issue before you decide to make such a big investment and such a risky thing. Why hire me it was clearly a much more expensive approach than getting something off the shelf or doing it internally by they could hire someone, an employee for less money than, would, than I would charge for the whole thing. So they could hire an employee for a year to do that. So nowadays what I'll do, I have what I call a why conversation where I ask three categories of why question. So the first one basically 
you know, there's like a lot of ways you can phrase it. But the first why is basically, why do this at all? Why not just leave things the way they are? You know, and they'll be like, oh, we couldn't do that. And I'm like, how come? I don't, I don't know. You know, I can guess, but I don't know. And they'll say, well, our competitors just released this new feature and we could, our clients are fleeing to this competitor. It's like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a big deal. There's value there. You know, so giving me a ton of money is not going to be wasted, per perhaps. Then mm -hmm. the next category is why now? So first is why this, why do this project at all? Then the second one is why now? And why now is like, you know, you've known about this for a year, how come all of a sudden your hair's on fire and you need to do it? Um, why not wait six months? Why not wait a year? That sort of thing. Like, is it urgent? Is it truly urgent right now? Or is there some way that we could push off this very big risky project that's going to be expensive, you know? And, <clears throat> and they'll be like, oh no, we couldn't possibly do that because, you know, maybe this is the competitor story, or maybe there's a big trade show or some event that they need to have things ready for. There's a, there'll be a reason why it'll be like, we need to do this right now. And then the last one, this is the one that's toughest for people to do because it eats away at your, it, it takes a lot of self-confidence and mm -hmm. a, a decent bank account <laughs> balance is to say, why me? Right. Why hire me, a premium resource, when you could do this internally, you could get interns to do it, you could find someone on Craigslist or Fiverr or 99designs. Why not do that instead of paying all this money to me? If, if you don't bring that up in the sales meeting, it's going to come back to bite you because in the proposal, you're going to have no leg to stand on to say why you would be better than any of those options. And if you have that out, you just take, tackle those potential objections head on. And you just say, you know, these are, these are all valid options. Why not just use a, you know, why not just use a WordPress template? There are plenty of, you know, why not do all these cheaper options and, and treat them like you would treat a family member. If a family member was coming to you to say, hey, could I pay you to do your job for me? I've got this thing. I figured I'd give you the work. You're not going to just take their money and be like, thanks. You're going to be like, hey, have you thought about getting a, a, you know, using Squarespace or doing something cheaper? And I do the exact same thing with my clients. And at the end of that conversation, you will either have talked them out of doing the project with you, for which they will thank you and perhaps come back later or refer you to someone else. But that's not usually what happens. Usually what happens is they list every single thing that would make them say no to your proposal. Okay. So you take their exact words, scribbling furiously as they're talking, and take their exact words, like you said before, using their lingo, put it directly into the proposal. And the proposal is going to be completely familiar to them. They're going to get the proposal and be like, yeah, we said this, we said this, we said this is all true. This is still true. I wasn't like hypnotized in the moment or confused. Like, this is all true. I just, just tell me how much it is. And then they'll see the price and it'll be high. But by having those conversations and, and determining why they want to do it right now in this way with you, it will be, you'll have a sense of what the value is and you'll be able to set a price that's well underneath that, like a 10th of the business value. Uh, you know, around there, it's, you know, it's hazy, but you can estimate, you know, their value, if their value is going to be a million dollars in the first year, or, you know, they think that it'll be whatever, whatever it is, so you can charge a 10th of that. And even if you're totally wrong, and it takes you twice as long, it's twice as hard for you to do it. And you were wrong by half on what their value is actually going to be in the first year, you still have a huge profit for both of you. And it's like, you know, proverbial win-win. So, Anyway, that was my 
Cool. My that's speech awesome. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's great. I think that's that's. Uh, I think people should have those conversations if, if they're not doing uh, value pricing. But uh, yeah, but, even if uh, they're not, right? Yeah, that's that's a great. That's a great. Uh, uh, I guess uh, contractor advice, actually consultant advice. To um, yeah, if you if you don't have unique, different, if you don't have something about you that's unique and different, yeah. the only thing they're they're not gonna clients aren't gonna understand how elegant your code is or any of that or whatever the intricacies of your craft are, they don't know or care. If you don't give them a concrete business reason that they can understand why you're better than somebody who charges half as much per hour, they have only one criteria to judge you on and that's the price because it's the only one that you gave them that they understand. Right. So if you want to stop competing on price, you have to have conversations like this. Right. Yeah. I think you definitely want to say like, I understood you and I know what the problem is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know I'm the differentiator, the X factor that make it, mm-hmm. make it better. So yeah, mm-hmm. totally understand that. Cool. Um, so how long have you been doing value pricing? Since, 10 years. Since, since you had the epiphany? 10 years? Mm-hmm. How yep. many years? I, yep. A decade. I, I had my 10, wow. 10 year, 10 year anniversary this year. Wow. Okay. Cool. Or 2016. So this, I'm starting my 11th year. All right, cool. And um, cool. Well, thank you for <laughs> giving your. Uh, is it, is, this is a new book, right? Or is this an old book? Sorry. No, it uh, came out in July of 2016. So it's okay, good. cool. Okay. Like, man, you've had these ideas for like 10 years. You didn't share them with anyone. Like, uh, <laughs> you didn't share with the world at the time. But yeah, so uh, that's great. So yeah, it, I just, I, I'm just kind of flabbergasted right now. So, uh, so that's awesome. That's been doing it for 10 years. I thought, I thought it was kind of recently recent thing but uh but also you, you talk about uh diversification of your income and in, in the book too and i thought that that was a great thing i think that's um i had i see the trend every once in a while online in the web design circles about uh, programmer circles to uh to, to, to do side projects if you will one um one to actually side projects for making money but also it's also good to do side projects just for leveling up leveling up your skill set mm-hmm. is also good too but uh but, uh, but you know, you, you of course write books that you have, you know, early playing is nuts. But uh, but uh, what else do you do to uh, diversify your income or what other ideas do you have for people that they can? Sure. They can- yeah, I put. I think it's good a good thing to have a, what I refer to as a product ladder. So you've mm-hmm. got at, at least two or three kind of services where people, services or products or productized services, which is sort of a hybrid of the two, that you can present to people on your site with a price for uh, probably all of them, if, if not most. And it allows people who maybe don't know you that well yet to engage with you in a, uh, in a less risky way with a smaller type of purchase. Uh, and then you can start to build trust with people and, and kind of try to get them to climb up the, excuse me, get to climb up the ladder. So, what the cool thing about this, there's sort of two cool things about it, I guess, at least two. One is that, you know, you're making sales of stuff that you wouldn't have otherwise. Cause most people just have one thing, like one rung on the ladder. It's, you know, submit a contact request form. We'll set up a meeting and I'll give you a quote and that's it. Uh, so I would say underneath that offer maybe a productized service where you're doing something like a roadmap or a style guide or wireframes or some kind of thing that's fairly fixed scope. You've done it a million times probably already. You probably do it for free on most of your regular projects 
find that thing that you do all the time. It could, it could be anything, database backups, uh, migration plan, uh, whatever. Could, uh, like design reviews. Uh, whatever it is, yeah. Some, right. some diagnostic or prescriptive thing that you do all the time at the beginning of a project and describe it discreetly. Imagine that you're going to do a proposal for a particular client, write that up, and then instead of giving it to a particular client, put it as a page on your website with a price and say $5,000 for a strategy roadmap and describe what it is, describe what the, the beneficial outcomes are. And uh, that gives people a way to engage with you that is a lot less risky than, hey, let's, let's start a conversation about you giving us a quote for this huge project. So that would be that would be like a first step. That that's usually the the next rung, the first rung of the ladder. People build after just a general project, but you can do other things too. As long as you're you're focused on delivering a particular kind of outcome, or you have some sort of value proposition, or you have something about you that that delivers an outcome that you are kind of passionate about or that you like, then you can create maybe a product beneath the productized service that's like, hey, you can hire me to do this big, huge project, or for say 300 bucks, you can buy this video series where I teach you how to do it yourself, or you can buy it for your developers and it'll teach them how to do it. So like retrofitting a desktop only site for mobile, I could do easily do uh, six hours on that, record it as a video and be like, Hey, don't, don't pay me all this money, buy this for 300 bucks, go through it and you'll probably be fine. Okay. If you're not fine, then we can talk about something else. But you know, so on and so forth. And then down lower, you know, tier would be like a book, same sort of thing. You know, here's how to teach yourself to do it, or here are the big uh, pieces that are involved. Right. So at each level, somebody can come in at like a two digit price, a three digit price, a four digit price, a five digit price. So you can kind of like level them up and you'll still have people that come in straight at the top, but okay. So that's the, the one thing is that you can get people to climb up the ladder. Uh, and you're making that, you know, you're making income that you never would have gotten before. But the much bigger thing I probably should have led with this <laughs> is that you now have a pipeline. Instead of randomly sitting around waiting for leads to occasionally show up in your inbox, which when I talk to people is like, I'll say, how many leads did you get that last week? And they'll laugh. I'll be like, none, right? And they're like, yeah, I maybe get two leads a year. And if you have people that, if you, if you have, uh, a hundred people, 300 people that bought your book or paid for your, you know, paid 50 bucks for some white paper that you wrote and you delivered great value to them. You followed up with them. They were really happy. Those people are, are, you know, prospects for something farther up the ladder. So if you come to this, if you're in, still in feast famine land and you see a famine coming, you see yourself headed into the trough, just send out an email to a bunch of people who have already gotten great ROI from one of your lower tier products. And you say, hey, I've got an unexpected opening in my calendar. If anybody wants to maybe get the next thing, uh, maybe here's a discount or whatever you want to do, or just raise their attention and say, hey, this is available. I've got this spot. If anybody's got an urgent situation, we should talk. And all of a sudden, you've got a lever that you can pull when you see that you're going to go into a dry spell. Because before, before I had that, I went into a dry spell, I was like, what do I do? AdWords? You know, no. Yeah. yeah. And so, so basically just like, if I just, if I rephrase it, just, or make sure I understand it. So basically make sure you have products. And then if you actually get products and you have a new product, you just actually go back and say, Hey, you know, you, you, you bought XYZ before in the past. 
or you've served services before in the past. Here's this new thing I have. Just want to share it with you and let, let you guys know about it. Right. So you have a you have a bunch of non-strangers. You have a bunch of customers. So like right now, doing doing project work, I mean, I probably only ever did three at the most three like real projects in a year. So you go from having three customers who you just serviced and don't need anything from you probably for another year or two at least. Now you go from having that to having 300 customers. And sure, some of them only give you $40, but they're still customers. That they, and they, they're going to have a much higher level of trust in you than you know, some drive-by person who is anonymously browsing around your website. Right. Yeah, they, they've already got some built-in buy-in from you. They trust the, they yeah. trust the Jonathan Stark brand. They then go for the next level. <laughs> exactly. They got yeah. value for their money. Good ROI. Yes. yes, there you go. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I can get ideas already. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, thank you so much for that. So I think that's, that's about it. For I think we're almost out of time too. So okay. any words of advice that you give someone who uh, would want to start doing this right now? Mm-hmm. And, yes, uh, definitely. <laughs> it, I feel, you know, whenever I talk about this stuff, I, I feel like I'm handing like a loaded gun to a little kid. It's like, it's like, don't cry and go. Like maybe you're listening to this and, you're, and the, the heavens are opening for you the way they did for me on that day. Don't jump. Don't try and throw everything into it. Don't try and convert all of your hourly customers to value price customers overnight. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to shift your systems over. If nothing else, your systems over. It's going to take a long time to shift your own thinking over, and it'll take even longer to shift your existing clients' minds over. It's really tricky. So dip your toe in. You know, with, test it because you'll do it wrong first. It takes some practice, and having that why conversation in particular. I promise you, if you go next time you go to do that, you not you, but whoever's watching, mm-hmm. next time you go to do that, you will probably not have the confidence to try and talk them out of working with you specifically. It's the complete opposite. Like talking to someone out of working you with you in a sales meeting, it's mm-hmm. completely counterintuitive, but it also is incredibly effective. So, but once, you know, it takes practice though. So okay. the idea is to, uh, just take your time, do it slowly. Let the let you have to let it sink in because some people feel like, oh, that you hear like, oh, that's just gouging, or he's just trying to get as much money out of them as he can. Yeah. And it's the exact opposite. You're ensuring that you will only work with people who are going to benefit greatly from yeah. your intervention. So just take it slowly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't overnight. Just do it. Okay. To rip up a bandaid bandaid just yet. Mm-hmm. Just work quick. Quick thing. Okay. Yeah. Practice. Great. Cool. Uh, where can people uh, purchase hourly, hourly Billing is Nuts? They can, well, they can go to hourlybillingisnuts.com. But before you do that, okay, it's free to go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and okay. get like, I think it's five or six days worth of emails about individual topics that we've discussed. They go into, into more depth, links to related resources, so on and so forth. So try that first before you buy my silly book. Okay. And if you later want to buy the book, that'd be great. Um, it's, it's been hugely effective for people. I've been overwhelmed with the positive feedback. So I, I promise that you will like it when you, if you buy it, but don't buy it yet. Okay, great. Uh, that falls right in line to your whole idea of like, why are you, why are you buying this book? I don't understand. Yeah. Talking you out of buying my book. Right? <laughs> Talking out of my book. But it's a great book. I, I've read it. Uh, it's really a crisp read. If I may say so, it's like, like quick blog post, which is like your writing style, by the way, I, I own this 
your mailing list and it's mm-hmm. like every day it's just like there's a little uh i guess yeah. a little cookie i guess you will my email box of of spam there's like oh jonathan wrote me today what is, what is he saying today so my daily shot of vitamin b yeah exactly. vitamin j <laughs> uh where, where else can people find you on the on the internet uh the best place the best place is really to jump on that mailing list uh, i interact with them like you said on a daily basis so if you have questions for me go through there i'm on twitter and stuff too but i don't check that that much very regularly anymore so the best way is to jump on the list you're a better man than me <laughs> you getting off that social media it's crack right there it's tough it's tough <laughs> I, I, I have quality of life reasons lately it's, it's i think better right right good all right man talk to you later fabulous great talking to you thanks for being on the show